Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is sponsored by the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, the Griffith Asia Institute, the New York Southeast Asia Network, the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies, and the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre. Welcome to the New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm Michelle Ford, the Director of the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney and co-host of the channel. Today I'm talking to another of my very excellent colleagues. It's been a good year for SEAC when it comes to books. Dr Natalie Pearson is the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre's Curriculum Coordinator and author of Blitung, The Afterlives of a Shipwreck, published by the University of Hawaii Press in 2022. Blitung is a rollicking read which takes the reader on a centuries-long journey of a ship, probably from what is now Oman or Yemen, which was wrecked near Blitung Island off the coast of the Indonesian island of Sumatra. This ship was important not only because of its precious cargo, but for what it tells us about international trade in the 9th century. This ship was important not only because of its precious cargo, or what it tells us of international trade in the 9th century, but also because of what Natalie calls its afterlives, how it was salvaged, how competing claims have been made about it, and the scandal it generated in the international museum world. Bringing a critical heritage studies approach to bear, the book traces those afterlives from the time of its wreckage to when it was discovered and salvaged to the present day. Welcome, Natalie. Hi, Michelle. Thank you for having me. Very nice to have you on the other side of the mic. Natalie, I'd like to start by asking what sparked your interest in shipwrecks in general and in the Blitung in particular. Well, I mean, shipwrecks, honestly, what's not to love? You know, the lure of the deep is very strong and I think they are commonly associated with treasure and tragedy and pirates. And when I tell people I work on shipwrecks, I mean, it's easy to get excited about them. But for me, working on the Blitung and on shipwrecks brings together three of my interests, three of my big interests in oceans, in museums and in Southeast Asia. So I became interested in the Blitung because of what it can tell us about bigger issues around the debates that are taking place in critical heritage studies, around the commodification of heritage, around how heritage is articulating these bigger power plays that are taking place at the local, the national and the international level, and about the ethics and politics of exhibitions in the museum world. So tell us a bit about the ship itself. How do we know where it comes from and what was it doing in Sumatran waters? Yeah, so it's pretty amazing that we are able to even have an answer to that question, to be honest, because if we think about it, this is a timber vessel, you know, all organic materials sitting on the seabed for over 1,100 years. But shipwrecks can survive for a remarkable amount of time if they're in a dark anoxic environment, you know, absent of disturbance or oxygen or light. Things can survive for a remarkably long time, even in the warm, you know, salty waters of Southeast Asia. So there are lots of different ways of thinking about where a shipwreck comes from and that can inform our answers to why it wrecked where it did off the east coast of Sumatra. Um, So when we're thinking about 
the identity or the origin of a shipwreck, one of the things we can look at is the construction techniques and how it was made. So this shipwreck is really remarkable because it was a stitched hull vessel, which means that it was sewn together using young coconut fibre. So there were no wooden dowels used in its construction, no metal nails. It was sewn together, it had wadding on the inside and the outside of the hull, and then the hull was rendered probably with something like goat fat to keep it watertight. So these construction techniques already suggest to us that it was a ship made using techniques that we commonly see in the Western Indian Ocean. And you referred to Oman and Yemen in your introduction. So there was, I guess, a suspicion that it came from the Western Indian Ocean because we see these stitched hull vessels still being made in places like Oman today. But we can also look at where the timbers came from. So it was quite difficult to do analysis of the timber because it was so waterlogged. It was just breaking down when they were trying to analyse it. And so they did a couple of rounds of analysis. And the first round of analysis suggested that most of the timbers were Indian. And then the second round of analysis showed that actually many of the timbers were in fact native to Africa. So the thinking became that this boat was constructed somewhere on the Arabian Peninsula, possibly Oman or Yemen. But there's still a lot of uncertainty and maybe even controversy in certain circles about this timber analysis. And some people think that it might have been built by people skilled in these techniques, but perhaps based in India or maybe even uh, Myanmar or Sumatra. And so what was it doing in Sumatran waters? Exactly. So it was carrying this um, cargo load of Tang Dynasty ceramics, right, about 70,000 objects from China, most of them actually from the kilns of Changsha in south central China, but it also had ceramics from northern China, from southern China. So we've got this boat made using, you know, timbers, we're not exactly sure where they came from, built in the Western Indian Ocean style, carrying Chinese cargo from the Tang Dynasty, and it sank off the coast of Belitung Island, which is sort of triangulated by Java, Sumatra and Borneo. So it's quite far south of the principal trading route or what we think of as the principal trading route through the Malacca Strait at the time. So the question becomes, what was it doing so far south? Some scholars thought that maybe it had simply been blown off course, but it was far too far south for that. It wasn't travelling through the Malacca Strait and simply blown off course by the monsoon wind. So then the question becomes, was it actually down there intentionally? Was it trading with a local entrepot, perhaps as part of the Surajayan Empire? Was it travelling to Java to trade with Java? Was it going through the Sunda Strait? Was its final destination Southeast Asia or was it trying to get back to the Western Indian Ocean? We don't know the answers to these questions. So it really makes us ask many more questions than it can answer, actually, when we think about all the different attributes that inform the identity of a shipwreck and this one in particular. But you do have some hints about the people whose lives were entwined with the Bleedung, don't you? Tell us what you know about who they might have been and done. So this is probably the most elusive part of the Blutung story and I'm really interested in the question of what constitutes a shipwrecks community. We might automatically think of the pilots and the navigators and the crew of the Blutung and it's amazing to think about them travelling vast distances across the ocean. They would have lived on top of the ship, perched on top of the cargo, probably on rolled out bamboo mats or something like that, living, cooking, sleeping, eating on top of the cargo, really exposed to the elements. Very brave, very difficult. You can imagine the sickness, um, the skill required to navigate, the knowledge of the monsoon winds, the need to tap into local knowledge, um, engaging with local pilots to navigate through reefs and shoals. 
But I also like to think of the Belitung's community in terms of, for example, the people who made the objects that were in its cargo, so these skilled ceramic producers in China, the merchants who commissioned the orders, the people who built the boat itself, requiring such incredible skill to craft a ship that is capable of traversing such distances without computers or drills or anything like that. Um, and also the people on shore who probably helped restitch the vessel. Um, there is evidence that it was restitched at some stage using Southeast Asian um, materials. So there were people on the shore who were supporting it in ports, who were providing food to the crew. Um, so we can think about all these different people. And there's also these suggestions that there might have been passengers on board We've got a, an ink stone that suggests that there was a literate, possibly Chinese traveller on board and other objects that were found, such as a tiny little die and four game pieces shaped like acorns, tell us that they were playing games on board to pass the time. So we get a, a hint of what was taking place on the ship and around the ship through these people, but yeah, it's just a hint. And we, there were no human remains found on the vessel. We don't know if anybody died, if anybody survived. It is possible that they could have swum to shore based on where it wrecked, but we don't have the answers to those questions. Hmm. We know a little bit more about another group of people, and that's the salvagers who brought the ship to the surface. The salvage world is a complicated one and perhaps one that our listeners don't know much about. Can you tell us a little about this world, just in general? Yeah, so let me start by defining some of the terms that we use. First of all, there's maritime archaeology and a maritime archaeological excavation. And this is a scientific approach to managing shipwrecks and other underwater cultural heritage that is articulated in the international community through the 2001 UNESCO Convention on the Protection of the Underwater Cultural Heritage and the rules in its annex about activities directed towards underwater cultural heritage. So these are scientific approaches. They usually involve government involvement. They can be costly, very time-consuming, uh, very methodical and very exacting. Then there's commercial salvage, and that is how the Blutung was brought up to the surface. The hull wasn't brought to the surface. The conditions of the Indonesian government salvage permit issued at the time were that the salvage company was to leave the hull in situ and to only bring the objects to the surface, which they did. So commercial salvage um, has a for-profit element, but it was legal in Indonesia at this time. It was not in accordance with the 2001 convention. And then there's looting and treasure hunting, right? And some people conflate commercial salvage with looting and treasure hunting. I think there is an important distinction um, looting and treasure hunting is completely unregulated. There is no oversight whatsoever. So you've mentioned here that in the case of the Blitung, commercial salvages were involved. What actually happens when they salvage the boat? You said the hull wasn't brought up, but where were the cargo and so on? Where did they end up? So let me just give you a sense of what was taking place on Blutung Island at that time. So there were a couple of shipwreck prospecting companies working on Blutung Island. Indonesia had legalised commercial salvage in 1989 and there was a bounty on Chinese ceramics in Indonesian waters. People were keen to find them and to bring them to the surface and to make money from them and to find out the stories associated with the shipwrecks in the process. So the commercial salvage company that salvaged the Blutung was actually working on another shipwreck in those waters called the Bacau, and they became aware actually through some local Indonesian fishermen who had been looking for trepang, sea cucumbers, and these local fishermen talked of a reef where bowls grow. 
It's a very evocative phrase and you get this idea of these ceramics on the seabed sort of revealing themselves to the fishermen through the reef. And for whatever reason, the local fishermen brought it to the attention of this particular salvage company and said, we want you to be involved in the salvage. So the company sought a survey and then a salvage permit from the Indonesian government. The salvage itself took place over two seasons. They had to pause their operations in the middle because of the monsoon. It became too dangerous. And they were just overwhelmed by the number of objects that were coming out of the water you have to desalinate these objects. They've spent so long underwater in the salt water. They need to be put in, in water to help them desalinate. So they were, the salvage company was digging these big pools on Bulutung Island and putting the objects in there to help them desalinate. But storage quickly became an issue. And once they discovered gold in the shipwreck, security also became an issue. So there was a question around how to protect the objects, how to keep them safe, how to keep the staff safe as well. And then after they were desalinated, What happened then? Were they taken to Jakarta? Where did they end up, these objects? Yeah, so the salvage company took the objects to New Zealand for conservation and some of them took many years to conserve. There's a silver wine flask. I think it cost many thousands of dollars to conserve just that one object. And at the same time as they were conserving these objects and and trying to give them a longer life, the salvage company was also involved in these negotiations around what they were going to do longer term with the objects. They wanted to sell them and under the conditions of the permit that the Indonesian government had issued them, they were required to split them 50-50 with the Indonesian government. However, they reached a deal with the Indonesian government. They did a sort of trade and they were allowed to sell the objects as a single collection. And that's a really important point, actually, because even though the legislation under which they were salvaging the objects required them to split the objects 50-50, the company was able to negotiate this deal where they could keep the assemblage together. And I've been told that there were many museums trying to cherry pick the best items. I mean, there are some astonishing pieces. There's a 1.2 metre tall ceramic yua from Gongxian. You know, it's even more outstanding than some of the gold pieces, to be honest. And the museums wanted these pieces. They did not want the 65,000 chuncture bowls that all look the same to the untrained eye. But the salvage company maintains that it was committed to selling the assemblage together. And actually, they more or less managed to do this. There was a bit of a bidding war, um, some high-stakes negotiations, And ultimately, they were able to sell uh, 53,000 of the 60,000 objects that were salvaged to one buyer. And the remaining 7,000 objects are still in storage in a shipwreck artifact warehouse in Jakarta. (laughs) Quite amazing, really. You've mentioned already a few times the role of the Indonesian government. And in the book, you explain that it's really highly significant that the salvage took place in Indonesian waters. Why is that so and how has this fed into subsequent controversies? Indonesia had legalised commercial salvage in 1989 in response to what it perceived as the theft of a shipwreck from its waters. This was the salvage in the mid-1980s of the Gelder-Malsen shipwreck, which Indonesia maintains was in its waters and it was salvaged and the objects were sold, blue and white ceramics were sold at auction in Europe Uh, for a hefty premium. And Indonesia had no legal recourse after that happened. So they introduced this legislation that allowed commercial salvages to be active in their waters. And 
this is the ultimately the paradox of the shipwreck because it was not managed in accordance with the international standards established by the 2001 Convention on the Protection of the Underwater Cultural Heritage. But nevertheless, the assemblage was legally recovered. It is mostly together, mostly intact. It is publicly accessible. It is on display today in a permanent exhibition and it is accessible to scholars. So it's been used as an educational and a scholarly resource, but it didn't get there by according with the international principles. So it's a real paradox and has really brought Indonesia and its approach to managing the shipwrecks in its waters, of which there are many thousands, um, up against international community standards and really forced us to ask, well, what is the best approach to managing the estimated 3 million ancient shipwrecks in the world's waters? Hmm. We'll return to this later when we talk about the museum controversies. But just before that, I want to turn to Singapore, which plays a major role in the shipwrecks' history, especially in the post-salvage period. Why did Singapore care so much about the Blitung? Singapore was trying to position itself as central to Southeast Asian maritime histories. This is part of Singapore's bigger push towards reconceptualising itself post-independence as more than just a sleepy fishing village and, in fact, as central to Southeast Asian maritime histories and also uh, central to this concept of the maritime Silk Road that we're hearing a lot about today. There was, as I said, a bidding war in a way and ultimately Singapore was successful in purchasing the objects because it had the money. It wasn't because there was a direct connection to this shipwreck. Uh, I've talked about the connections to the Western Indian Ocean. It sank in what would become Indonesian territorial waters and the objects were from China. So the only way Singapore fits into this story is because they had $32 million, which is a a huge amount, that enabled them to be the successful purchasers of the objects. And and there was interest from other countries, particularly China. The Shanghai Museum was very keen to purchase the objects, but ultimately missed out to Singapore. And Singapore wanted to use them as the basis for a new public maritime museum. And sadly, that public maritime museum has never eventuated. The objects are now on permanent display at the Asian Civilizations Museum, which is not a dedicated maritime museum. So Singapore's invested all this money into these artefacts that really don't have a direct connection to Singapore. And you're you're talking about how they're trying to establish themselves in terms of the maritime Silk Road, really. Precisely. Singapore had a very small maritime museum for a couple of years, but I I understand it was focused on sort of commercial shipping and wasn't very popular with the public. And they had ambitions to develop a bigger public maritime museum. Now, what ended up happening is they purchased the Blutung objects for $32 million, brought these 53,000 objects into their care, and actually they were under the care of the Tourism Board, which is a very interesting point because it tells us how they intended to use the objects as part of this push to bring people to Singapore and to create tourist opportunities through heritage. It was only several years later that they transferred the objects from the Tourism Board to the Heritage Board. And unfortunately, the vision for a public maritime museum was never realised. And instead, what we have is this maritime experiential museum associated with an aquarium as part of the commercial venture on Sentosa Island. And the objects did not go on display in that commercial uh, museum. Instead, they sort of got pushed around the Heritage Board and, and went on various temporary small exhibitions for a number of years before finally being installed as part of a permanent exhibition. 
So we have this shipwreck, which was legally salvaged in Indonesia, the cargo of which was legally bought by Singapore, but it's turned out to be quite controversial in the museum world. And in the book, you talk about several key museums playing a role in these controversies, the most prominent of which is probably the Smithsonian Institution. Can you tell us a bit about how the Smithsonian became involved and what its involvement tells us about debates around underwater heritage in the museum world? Having purchased the objects for $32 million, Singapore had grand visions for them. In addition to establishing a public maritime museum, they wanted to embark on this international travelling exhibition to showcase the objects to the world. And this is a key role for museums, educating the public, providing opportunities for people to access and see these objects that are otherwise inaccessible. So the Singaporean government partnered with the Smithsonian Institution in Washington and put together this beautiful catalogue full of glossy colour pictures, scholarly articles, and plans to launch an international travelling exhibition called Shipwrecked, Tongue Treasures and Monsoon Winds. So the exhibition opened in Singapore at the Art Science Museum, this beautiful new museum, and the plans were that it would travel to Washington after that and then from there go around the world, including possibly to the Australian National Maritime in Sydney and, and elsewhere, all over the world. But once it opened at the Art Science Museum in Singapore, we started to get these sort of rumours and controversies bubbling away within the maritime archaeological community in America. And the Smithsonian became increasingly concerned about the ethical considerations of putting on display objects that had been commercially salvaged. And they were concerned that to do so would be to condone the means by which they had been brought to the surface. So what we saw was initially the Smithsonian postponed the exhibition and then um, just five months before it was due to open in, in America, they actually cancelled their involvement in it. And this is having co-produced a publication, a catalogue, I mean, it caused a huge controversy. Singapore had this white elephant on its hands. It had spent public money on these objects and now the Smithsonian had pulled out very publicly what was Singapore to do with the objects. And the thing that really strikes me about the withdrawal of the Smithsonian really is the neo-colonial attitudes that we see percolating through their decision to cancel and also their ambitions after cancellation to re-excavate the site, as they said, because they had not consulted with Indonesia about this. They had not demonstrated their understanding that the hull had been left in situ deliberately and intentionally by Indonesia with the idea of developing it into a tourism site. And they also didn't demonstrate an understanding of the fact that the site had already been re-excavated by Indonesian archaeologists. So, I feel like the Smithsonian was responding to an internal controversy within maritime archaeological circles in America and could have been a lot more consultative before taking the, this quite significant decision to cancel and really to ruin the international travelling plans for quite a long time. Hmm, it's really interesting, isn't it? And that neocolonial approach is maybe even more widespread if we go looking for it. But I think this is a great time to turn to the idea of critical heritage studies, which is the approach you use in the book. Uh, you've given us a hint there of the debates in the museum world, but what insights as a whole does your book contribute to this field? So critical heritage studies is a really fascinating area of inquiry. Um, it's interdisciplinary. It's asking questions about her how heritage is used, how it's constructed, how it's valued, 
and also about how it shapes and constructs in turn. But the problem is that critical heritage studies has been so terrestrially focused. It's so terrestrially biased. And if we think about the ocean, it covers 70% of the globe. As I said, there's estimated to be 3 million ancient shipwrecks. People talk about the ocean being the world's largest museum. So critical heritage studies is missing 70% of the story if it's only engaging with temples and monuments on land. So I'm really interested in thinking about geographies of the sea in much more imaginative and creative ways and using critical heritage studies to do this and connecting underwater cultural heritage through the bigger debates that are taking place in heritage studies. And this might include in relation to climate change, the nature-culture relationship, how nations appropriate and commodify heritage for their own purposes. I mean, there are many debates taking place in heritage studies But I think using underwater cultural heritage to think about critical heritage studies actually allows us to ask many important and interesting questions. Let's turn now to questions of methodology. The story of the Blitung is such a huge one. How on earth did you go about piecing it together? I used this concept that I call the afterlife. And this is not a new concept. It's quite common in archaeology, for example, thinking about object biographies. So I was committed to telling the whole story of the wreck from as many perspectives as I could and to thinking about the lives of those objects very inclusively. I don't think we can think about these ceramic bowls and these golden cups in isolation from the networks that created them and used them. So when I was conducting my research, one of the things I'm most proud of is that I was able to interview people who were directly involved in the salvage I had the opportunity to interview people who were there on the ground or on the water, so to speak. And at the same time, as my research progressed, people began to contact me offline, I suppose, and to provide me with documents and information that was not in the public domain. So uh, I was able to weave all these different pieces of information together. And certainly a lot was published on the controversies around the cancellation of the exhibition, but there was also a lot published on the rumours around what had taken place during the salvage. So I had the opportunity to ask questions about those rumours, to clarify and to really gain the whole picture about the afterlife of this shipwreck. To some that might sound more like detective work than an established research methodology. Um, What would you say that your methodology was if we wanted to talk about it in academic terms? Well, as I said, my approach was to use this concept of the afterlives. And this is something that archaeologist Chris Gosden engages with and and other scholars. And I was really inspired by an article by Deborah Cherry about the afterlives of monuments. So she had used it as it applied to terrestrial sites about how they can be remodeled, reused, cast aside. And we see that all the time with temples re-emerging in the public imagination. I mean, it happened with Borobudur. It was abandoned in quote marks for a long time before being again in quote marks rediscovered and repurposed. So I wanted to engage with this concept in an underwater context, this concept of object biographies, the hands that they touch, the networks that they enter into, how those trajectories change. Um, And, you know, when you're thinking about a shipwreck with an estimated 70,000 objects on board, And some of these objects are still in Indonesia. Some of these objects are in Singapore. Some are in China. You know, there's many different trajectories that you can trace when you're thinking about the afterlives. So the ethical concerns associated with this kind of research are quite specific. 
How did you reflect on these and how did you navigate them? It's really hard to answer this question, actually, because as an emerging scholar, embarking on a project that was, as I came to realise, quite controversial, it could have been enough to put me off at times, I suppose, because I became aware that in the eyes of some scholars, whose work I respect, to even research this shipwreck was to justify treasure hunting and to run the risk of being an apologist for looting. And I certainly don't want to be an apologist for looting. At the same time, I was unable to answer this question of how we deal with orphaned objects, right? Objects that have not been recovered in accordance with international scientific and archaeological standards. But nevertheless, they are sitting in the storage room of the Singapore Tourism Board or the National Heritage Board. And so what do we do with them? If we're going to be a purist, does this mean that we have to throw them back in the water? And then the ethical question that arises from that is, what about the public's right to know? Like we can't all be divers. We can't all be down there looking at these shipwrecks. And they're a finite resource anyway. They're not down there indefinitely. As soon as people discover them, they are under threat and at risk. So these orphaned objects are in the public domain. They have not been recovered ethically. But then the question is, how do we manage them ethically from that point forward? That was the thing that kept me going, even when I realised that, you know, there was a lot of criticism about the project. And I hope to have been able to come close to answering that in a way, because they talk about this museological dilemma, right, with museums, which are the obvious custodian or caretaker for these orphaned objects, and the tension between the funding requirements of, of museums and needing to get audiences through the door by running big blockbuster exhibitions about shipwrecks and their ethical obligations to not display looted objects. But for me, that was a false dichotomy. I came to realise that the really ethical question was how do we display them in a way that is transparent and does justice to the objects, allows us to access them as members of the public or as scholars, and really allows us a starting point to think about those bigger debates around exploitation of heritage, commodification, how the objects came to be in the museum. That for me is the real museological dilemma. Okay, very interesting. I'd like to change tack now with my final question and ask you about the implications of the Bleethorn story for our understanding of contemporary politics in the region. You've been talking about the politics of museums, but in geopolitical terms, how do the controversies surrounding this shipwreck shed light on broader debates about the modern maritime Silk Road? So the wreck connects us to these debates around what scholar Tim Winter calls geoculture and the idea of heritage as a geocultural resource. So what this means is that culture and history through heritage are being used to accumulate power and also to articulate power. So the Maritime Silk Road and its modern-day iteration through the Belt and Road Initiative is a really great example of this. Heritage is one tool as part of a broader strategy that seeks to redefine the global, economic, social and political landscape, and shipwrecks are absolutely essential to this. This particular shipwreck tells us about the power relations that heritage is used to sustain. So many modern nation-states wanted a piece of it. They wanted to cherry-pick the best for their top museums 
And when that wasn't an option, they wanted to buy the entire collection to support their national narratives. We know that Singapore was the the lucky bidder in the end. But as I've said, China was also interested and so was Qatar to support their national narrative. So what it does is it makes us think about the role of the modern nation state in heritage production and the politics of representation. And if I'm to break that down, what it means is who gets to tell the stories about the past and how? Is it simply a matter of who's got the most money? What stories are being told? Who are they being told to? And what is being left out? Really, that's what this shipwreck gets to the heart of for me. And yes, shipwrecks are great to think with, but it's actually how shipwrecks can get us to think about this modern use of the past, how they inform the stories that we're telling for the future that is of most interest to me. Well, thanks, Natalie, for your insights into this fascinating story. Just before we wrap up, would you like to tell us what you're currently working on? Sure. Well, look, you'd think I'd be sick of shipwrecks by now, but I'm not. Um, So having spent so long with this ancient shipwreck and so engaged by all the stories it has brought forth, I'm still working on shipwrecks, but this time I'm putting the shipwrecks second and I'm putting the national narratives first. So I'm working on a research project on heritage diplomacy through sunken warships in maritime Southeast Asia. At the same time as I was writing this story of the Blitung, there was a lot of industrial scale salvage of World War II shipwrecks taking place in Southeast Asian waters. And I had the opportunity to work on one of these shipwrecks, HMAS Perth, an Australian shipwreck in Indonesia, and became interested in the fate of other World War II shipwrecks in Southeast Asia and um, how they're being used and their potential as tools of diplomacy in the region. So I'm really looking forward to exploring that more, venturing beyond Indonesia and venturing a lot more into the modern contemporary world. I'm no longer working in the ninth century, but much more current. So really looking forward to exploring that more. Sounds like a great next project. Natalie Pearson, thanks for joining us on New Books in Southeast Asian Studies to discuss Blitung, the afterlives of a shipwreck. You've been listening to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. If you enjoyed this episode, you can listen to hundreds of other conversations about Southeast Asia-related books on the channel. You can download or stream these interviews free of charge from the New Books Network website or subscribe through your favourite podcast app. I look forward to joining you again before too long for another conversation about a new book in Southeast Asian Studies.